All right, well, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you to those of you who showed up and for everyone that's listening online, um, either on Lakeview or on New Harvest Ministries. Um, such, a, such a pleasure of mine to see everyone uh, able to make it out here tonight. Now, uh, tonight, I kind of got to jump right into things. This is sort of a dangerous message uh, for the preacher tonight. Not because anything I'm going to be saying is, is controversial. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm sure there's someone out there who would, who would find it controversial. But, but the real reason I say it's a danger is because I, I do have a lot that I want to kind of move through and, and get through tonight. And so my prayer is that, that the Spirit of God would work through His Word, that, that His Word would be illuminated to us all, that we would see it as the life-changing, soul-satisfying reality, which it is. And uh, so if, if, you are, uh, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, or if you like to do this on your, on your phone, if you want to take your Bible and turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9, and to give you some background information uh, that you might understand the context of this passage, I'm sort of going to give you a very... Very brief history lesson here. Uh, Up to this point, we see that the Jewish people have been set free to return home after the Babylonian exile. And now this Babylonian exile, this, this is a very important event in redemptive history. And it is going to be very impactful upon much of what you read in your Old Testament. This was a long and troubling time for the Jewish people. Due to the persistent sin of the Jewish people, God used King Nebuchadnezzar as judgment upon Judah. He conquered Jerusalem and and most of her inhabitants, and they were deported to live in Babylon. This was, to say the least, a very unpleasant time. The people, they are quite shaken as they are no longer in their familiar homeland with the temple and with their traditions and everything that would remind them of home, everything that makes them feel Jewish, feel like who they are, they are now separated from. And they are instead in some strange foreign pagan land. Uh, Psalm 137 describes the despair of their estrangement in such beautiful words. We read, By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. But how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Those are are heart-wrenching words. But the Lord God is full of abundant mercy and grace, and he promises his people that they would be returned. Listen to God's words in Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah chapter 29, verses 10 through 14. For thus saith the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. 
I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Now, the, the amazing thing here, and this is going to sort of set the tone for tonight's message, is although the people of Israel were so sinful, and they did wicked in the sight of the Lord, and they rebelled so greatly, the Lord, to such an extent their rebellion was, that the Lord deemed it appropriate to bring judgment upon them. Yet God's covenant faithfulness shines through in that he nevertheless promises his children, I will deliver you. I will fulfill to you my promise. And I will bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, plans for welfare and not for evil, but to give you future and a hope. Such is the perplexing and awesome wonder of the mercy of the Lord our God. God's words are intended to give his people hope amidst their great trial. And in God's providence, just as he promised through Jeremiah in the verses we just read, when those 70 years were fulfilled in the year 538 B.C., the Jewish people were free to return home. The book of Ezra records this most happy event in the history of the Jewish people. Ezra retells for us the the reconstruction of the temple. And then when we get to Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah prominently records for us the reconstruction of the wall of Jerusalem. And then when we get to chapter 8, we arrive at this climactic moment where the people of Israel are gathered, happy and pleased to be back in their homeland, and Ezra the scribe, as well as others, stand before the people on a wooden platform, and, and they read and give the sense of, that is, to explain the law, the Word of God. Just as we tonight are here Gathered as the people of God, focused upon the preaching of the word of God, this is what we find in Nehemiah 8. What an exciting time this was. What a joyous time this was. The people of Judah had just spent decades in captivity in a strange land, and now here they are back in Jerusalem, worshiping the Lord, hearing the word of the Lord, once again out in the open. A great feast is celebrated. There is great rejoicing amongst the people as spiritual fervor is rekindled. Then at the outset of chapter 9, the people are confessing their sins before the Lord. Then we get some, and this is where we're going to be spending a lot of our time tonight, uh, some dialogue, really a a prayer uh, of the people that, that gives us a history of the Lord and how he has dealt with Israel. And where time and time again, God is so loving to the people, and time and time again, the people are so rebellious to God, and time and time again, God is so merciful to the people. Tonight, we are going to be taking a look at what the Holy Spirit has inspired for us in the ninth chapter of the book of Nehemiah. And my honest and sincere prayer for myself and for you all is that what we do here not be just some sort of mere history lesson, but rather as we reflect upon redemptive history as the people of God, and we see how God has faithfully dealt with his covenant people all throughout time, that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged to recognize that this is reflective of who God is. And if that is who God is, and this is how God deals with his people, 
we can trust that he will deal with his people today in the same way. And you may ask, well, who are God's covenant people in, in the year 2023? Obviously, the nation of Israel, who is, who is Jewish and, and, ha, and has rejected Jesus Christ, you would say, well, clearly this is not who we're talking about. Well, I say that God's covenant people are every one of his spiritual children, those who put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So lean upon God's good grace and let your spirit grow strong as we together, as the people of God, reflect on the history of the people of God. Now looking here in Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 1, we, we start to read, Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Yeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, and Shenanai, and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And so notice there in, in that, that passage I just read, notice in the first place what we find the people of Israel doing. Now in chapter 8, which precedes this, which they have just observed the reading and proclamation of the law, the law of God. And upon hearing the word of the, word of the law with their ears, the truth of it is impressed to their hearts and they are convicted. They are convicted of their sin. As their own sinfulness is made known to them. And so we find the people absolutely just broken, just shattered over their own sin and unworthiness, crying out to the Lord their God. And verse 5 will begin what has been considered the longest recorded prayer in the Old Testament. And it can essentially be broken up into two basic components. The people's praising of God and the people's confession of their sin. And so verse 5 we read, Then the Levites, Yeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshebaniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, and Pethahiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. Now that right there is what we refer to when we talk about doxology, when we talk about the praising of our great and wonderful God. Notice the specific element of their praising of God, saying, blessed be your glorious name. In, in this Old Testament context, to praise the name of God means to praise God for his character, for his attributes. To praise God simply for who he is. This is something that, that I think is lost on a lot of American evangelicals uh, today. One of our biggest problems is that in our everyday thinking, and even sadly in much of our theology, we are so man-centered in the way that we, we think, the way that we think about ourselves, the Bible, the world, so man-centered, and we're not God-centered as God is. And, and so the idea of Blessing and praising the glorious name of God, which is exalted above all blessing and praise, is, is, is such a contrast to our own activity. 
We're talking here about loving God because he is God and because God is lovely. What we are going to see here from this point in the prayer up until about verse 15 is a long uh, list of retelling various good and, and wonderful things that God has done in history, particularly focused on things found in the law or the Torah, the first five books of the Bible written by Moses. And what you will notice if you follow along with me in your Bible is, is the constant use of the word you on the part of the man praying. Now, now why do I mention that? Because what we have to realize is the whole passage is about God. It's not about us, but it's about God. And we are simply praising God for how mighty and how wonderful and how lovely he is. Verse 6, we read, You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve it, all of them. And the host of heaven worships you. So obviously, what are we reading about in this verse? The very first thing that the Lord is prayed for, or is praised for, is his act of creation, which is the very first thing we read about in the Torah. God's making of the heavens and the earth and all that is on it. That nothing exists outside of God that was not made by God. And this is, this is so important. Because the number one thing that distinguishes God from everything else is his eternality. That, that he is uncreated. Which is why verse 6 starts by saying, You are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven and the earth and all that is on it. We keep reading in verse 7, You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, and the Amorite, the Perizzite, and the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. Notice again the, the God-centeredness of this passage. Verse 8 does not say, and Abraham was faithful, but rather verse 8 says, you, referring to God, you found his heart faithful. You see, the text is just written in such a way that we realize this is not about Abraham. This is about you, God. Our, our praising is focused upon you. Look at verse 9. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. 
One of the things that, that is so rich when you study this passage is that many of the things being said are almost direct quotations of particular Old Testament texts. Now remember, the people of Israel gathered here had just got done spending uh, about four to six hours reading from the law of Moses, reading the first five books of the Bible, hours reading it, hearing it proclaimed, meditating upon it. And so their thinking is just going to be so Bible-saturated. But in these almost direct quotations of Old Testament verses, they are put in the second person rather than the third. You see, because the focus is on God. It's on the greatness of God, the glory of God. But how has God displayed his glory? Well, by his everlasting love and faithfulness to his covenant people, delivering them out of the land of Egypt by miraculously parting the Red Sea that they might walk through. Moses did not part the Red Sea, but God did, leading them by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. I, I love the phrase in verse 13, you gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. Just, we just got to think about that because how many of us speak that highly of God's commandments? Speaks that highly of God's commandments in Leviticus, in Deuteronomy. We, we don't think like that, but that's what the people of Israel are saying here. They're saying right rules, true laws, good statutes and commandments. The text continues, You gave them bread from heaven and water from the rock. And then we notice at the end of verse 15, And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Now, if we just stop right there, well, surely you would think after God has just continually been so loving to the people, parting the Red Sea, delivering them from Egypt, bread from heaven, all these different things, that God has continued to show his love and his grace towards them. You would think, well, of course they're, they're going to obey God, right? Well, we keep reading. Verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously, and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Here we, we see the biggest problem that every human being has, that the people of Israel had, that I have, that, that you have, that, that every human being has, and that is sin. It's like no, no matter how much love God shows us, we still rebel. And understanding our own depravity and in connection with God's holiness ought to be enough to make you shiver. Surely God has the right to just, just strike the people of Israel down, right? Just, just get rid of it. I'm done with it. No more. It's gone. Just sweep the dust over it, right? Well, we keep reading in verse 17. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them, 
even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. How incredible is this? After all that the people had done, sinfully, wickedly, rebelling against God, his spirit never departed from them. God was faithful to them, continuing to show them grace, to show them mercy, to show them love. Now you would think that the people would learn their lesson. But then we keep reading in verse 26. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you and they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. Once again, Despite all the love, all the mercy, all the goodness, all the blessings God had bestowed upon his people, they forsook his law. They rebelled against him. And so how does God respond to this continued wickedness, this continuous rebellious people? We keep reading in verse 27. And in the time of their suffering... They cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. There we go. God hears their cries and does not withhold his mercy. And so you would think, well, surely they've learned their lesson. Verse 28. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. They once again did evil in the sight of the Lord. God brings his discipline, brings his judgment upon them. But what becomes of this? How does God, God respond to the people in the situation? We keep reading. Yet... When they turned 
and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies, and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. The people continued to rebel. It's, it's just the same old story time and time again. The people rebelling against God time and time again. God is merciful. But it's like the people never learned their lesson. And in verse 30, once again they are given back over to their enemies. Now, if you or I had a person who pers- persistently, just continuously betrayed us, stabbed us in the back every time we helped them, every time we forgave them. They would just continue to just hurt us, to just rebel against us, just to make a mockery of all that we are. At some point, you or I, in our weakness, we would stop helping them. We would just just cut them off. But what does verse 31 say about our God? Verse 31, Nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You see, this is the thing about our God. He he is gracious. He is merciful. He is faithful. He, He has made a covenant with the people of Israel, and he's not going to break it. He is going to continue to be faithful to them despite all of their sinning, despite all of their rebellion against him. Every single time, God sees it right to bring his judgment upon them. When he hears his people's cries, when he hears his children's cries, and they cry out for his name, he shows them his mercy. He shows them his love. All throughout their history, There has been this continuous cycle of God's love, the people's rebellion, God's judgment, the people cry out to God, he is merciful, and then the people rebel again, and it's just the same old story. The cycle just continues and continues and continues. And and at at the risk of running short on time, let us look at the remainder of chapter 9 where the people begin to almost sense or feel the cycle continuing. We read in verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people, since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, For you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom, and amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you 
or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves, and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Now, verse 38, because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. So what do you you have here? Well, what you have is the people sensing their own sin, being, remember, they had just gotten done observing and meditating over God's law for hours on end. And, And so perceiving and sensing their own wickedness they realize, they perceive that God's judgment is going to come upon them again. And so they make this covenant. They commit themselves to be faithful to God's statutes. And through it all, they are able to trust that God will hear their cries. Because what did we just get done reading throughout Nehemiah chapter 9? Is that every single time the people cried out to God, God heard their cries. And so they they trust that God will hear them when they plead for him. Because they know, based upon who he is and what he has done, that he is a merciful and gracious God. Now I realize this is a very lengthy Wednesday night devotion, but, but maybe you're a Christian here tonight. Maybe you have a sense of your own sin. You've been battling with certain temptations. You feel like you've just just fallen so many times. I just want you to look back over the history of your life. And there may be many times when you've experienced God's discipline. But through it all, if you are a Christian, God has continued to be faithful to you. Not because you deserved it, but because that's just who he is. Just look at how he dealt with the Israelites. So my charge for you tonight is that you would, because of who God is, looking over, doing this very large overview of redemptive history, that that you would just look at this and, and think about it and meditate upon it. And that you would, because of who God is, today, make this covenant with him. Commit to him. Cry out to him. Ask him to forgive you. And he will. I promise you he will. And strive with all of your might to live for his glory from this day on until you are with him in glory. Thank you very much for for listening to me tonight. Brother Bill is going to come and close us in prayer. God bless.